0: Hello and welcome to another episode of InfoSec Cyberspeak, the weekly podcast where industry thought leaders share their knowledge and experiences in order to help us all stay one step ahead of the bad guys. Today's guest is Ben Johnson, CTO and co founder of Obsidian Security. We're going to be covering a variety of different topics around the general umbrella theme of shifting cybersecurity priorities in the face of an evolving threat landscape. Ben Johnson is CTO and co founder of Obsidian Security a rapidly growing cybersecurity startup that provides identity intelligence. Johnson is also a technical amicus on the United States Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, FISA. Prior to founding Obsidian, he co-founded Carbon Black, where he led efforts to create the powerful uh, capabilities that helped define the next generation endpoint security space. Prior to Carbon Black, Ben was an NSA computer scientist and later worked as a cyber engineer in an advanced intrusion operations division for the intelligence community. He has extensive experience building complex systems for enterprise environments where speed and reliability are paramount. Ben, thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me and uh, quite the intro. I
0: appreciate it. Okay, <laughs> very good. Yeah, well, I'll make sure everyone knows. So uh, we start out every episode by asking a little bit about your security journey. Where did you first get interested in computers and tech and and how did that move from general computers maybe to cybersecurity?
1: So I'll, I'll try to not be long-winded, but I get pretty excited talking about, uh, you know, well, yeah. really anything, but, okay. but uh, so it's actually a little bit amusing. So first of all, I uh, got a Commodore 64 when I was like three, you know, you my dad. are the seventh person now <laughs> to say a Commodore 64 <laughs> was the first computer. So that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, all... my, dad, my, da- yep, my dad was helping me uh, uh, learn basic and all that. He's not like a, a hardcore computer guy or anything, but, you know, I think he saw the future. Uh, but really, I grew up in Vermont and I grew up on top of a mountain. And really, that meant we had no TV channels, but we had a phone line. And AOL and the sort of beginnings of, uh, you know, um, internet providers and things like that were just starting to to come around. So I, I really just grasped onto that. And uh, and you know, fast forward a little bit, I, I really got into programming and and just technology and and computer science. Um, and then security, I saw the movie Enemy of the State. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I was already kind of interested in security, but it wasn't really like today, where there's lots of online literature and courses. It was really just sometimes people would, you know leave Telnet open or stuff like that, like a long time ago, and, you know, forge emails from other people. So you start to think about the attacker versus defender side. But then I saw Enemy of the State, and I, I was like, whoa, this NSA thing is really cool. And at the time, NSA was much more private. It was called No Such Agency. And, you know, they, they didn't have cameras. They didn't have it in the news all the time. They didn't have the, you know, director of NSA giving talks and things like all the stuff that's happened since. Uh, And so I applied and I, and I fell in love and I'm happy, I'll happily talk about my journey more, but uh, that was really the start of it. And then I've been hooked ever since.
0: Wow. So that's funny. Uh, I was actually going to next, next ask how you got involved with the NSA, but uh, it literally comes from one, one watching of uh, enemy of the state.
1: Well, and then, and then I, you know, flew out there and interviewed. And there's just—it's a massive organization, lots of different uh, offices and 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 sort of parts of the mission you can work for or work on. And uh, I really just enjoyed that work. And I, I stayed in the intelligence community till 2007. Uh, then I wanted to take a break. I I was in DC. I wanted to move back to Chicago, which is where I went to undergrad. Uh, and we never and my wife went there. and We never really got to uh, experience downtown. Mm-hmm. Worked in the financial trading industry for a couple years, writing code for traders. Which was a really cool experience, but my heart's in security, and so uh, in 2009 I went back to security, and I've been there ever since.
0: Wow! Um, and so from there, um, what sort of moved you towards uh, you know being with Carbon Black and then founding Obsidian? What did you What did you learn at the NSA that sort of progressed your your
1: path that way? Yeah, I mean, we we had to learn a lot about both offense and defense and cyber, right? Okay. And it was just this like thrown into the fire like you have to learn as much as you can and a lot of the problems you're working on you couldn't just like Google a solution so it really created this uh, this this philosophy among all of us that you just have to figure stuff out and like figure out how things work and and build something if it doesn't exist right now uh, and so that just I think that fits with like the entrepreneurial side of, of the house uh, and then on the carbon black side, we were doing incident response in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, around Operation Aurora when the Chinese were hitting a bunch of sites, and we were saying, "Man, incident response—this is like copying hard drives and forensics. Like this is so inefficient, so ineffective." Uh, if you look to the physical world, you have surveillance cameras where you can rewind the tape. If you look to airplanes, you have the black box or the flight recorders kind of thing. So. We uh, we immediately started saying, what if we collected all this data? Would that you know sort of see enough of the attack and and be able to rewind the tape and help incident response? And so the journey kind of you know went from there and kind of exploded in a good way and and uh, you know sort of the rest is history. I'm happy to talk more, but um, essentially in 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 at the end of 2016. I was really getting that itch again to like do something new and and to really start something uh, from the ground up. Right. And, and, you know, we were 800 people at CB I was doing a hundred flights a year globally uh, just, it was awesome, but, um, just wanted to do something new. And so I actually ran into to Glenn and Matt, who were my competitors. They were at silence, mm. uh, but we had, we had strong, uh, friendships. Matt and I were both at NSA and, uh, you know, Glenn and I had a lot of conversations around potential partnerships early on before we became very competitive. Uh, so we had friendships and, and mutual respect and I wanted to move out of the the weather, <laughs> so I was in <laughs> Chicago, and I grew up in Vermont. So I sort of served my time, you mm-hmm. could say. Yeah. Uh, and these guys are in SoCal in Southern California, and uh, that sort of fit. And uh, plus, our personalities fit and everything. So, you know, here we are, started Obsidian uh, early 2017, and now we're about two years in, and uh, you know, just sort of the, the the gas is down, and we're we're moving forward as fast as we can.
0: Okay and so was was there an opportunity to do something on sort of a more personal level with obsidian because you're saying that like carbon black it seemed like the scale was maybe too large uh was this able to were you able to sort of like work on a different different scale this way or
1: yeah i mean you know carbon black uh, continues to you know be be great and mm-hmm. uh, built some really cool tech and i I, got, I was fortunate that i was essentially became like the field facing cto where i got to interface with kind of the best of the best security teams and and all this stuff and and learn from them. Um, and that was really cool, but I, I kind of missed just the building and the the initial like right blank, blank whiteboard, let's yep. build something new. Yep. Um, and it had been seven years and you sort of get that itch, right? And and so yeah, it was like, let's get back to building, let's start something fresh, um, you know, really impact the trajectory of a new organization and, and see where I could go. Okay. So uh, we have kind of a variety of
0: topics to discuss with you today, but let's sort of start at the top level and and move our way down. So uh, in your um, introduction to me, you said uh, um, that to, to defend our environments in this changing threat landscape, we have to focus on the user. It's the only way state of security will actually improve. So what does it mean to focus on the user when
1: crafting your cybersecurity strategy? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few different uh, angles there that all complement each other. So okay. I think no matter what, you can't ignore culture. You have to think about culture. You have to think about education. Uh, you know, you could add a whole bunch of security staff, but if you can get a hundred thousand employees or 10,000 or 1,000 or whatever you have just acting a little bit better, more intelligently, being a little bit more careful with what they do or, you know, that kind of thing, that's way more impactful than adding, you know, 10, 10 awesome headcount, right? Uh, simply because of numbers and statistics. So you have that angle, you have the whole people and culture angle, um, from a more like trend and, and technical angle. Um, what we're seeing, this is why we decided to focus more on on like in, we call, we now call it intelligent identity protection. But with this whole move to the cloud and a lot of end users and employees moving more, you know, mobile and roaming, whether it's coffee shops or personal devices or whatever, you're losing control of the network, and then a lot of times you're losing control of the device like the client device the endpoint device and even the back end because the back is now cloud so really the only thing you can do is try to manage that access of who is accessing what is that appropriate access and then what are they doing with it so you then have to start to think about okay how would i analyze things like behavior like does this look like this person does it look malicious from an insider perspective and then the other angle i want to talk about which fits into both of those is if i'm an attacker I want access. Access is king. I'm coming after your credentials. If I can get credentials and log in as you, Mm -hmm. I'm not installing anything. I'm not doing anything, you know, kind of crazy from like a system perspective. I'm just logging in, using things the appropriate way, just pulling your documents, your, your database. Right. Um, And it's, it's, I don't mean to trivialize it. It's hard. Like, you know, bad guys have to steal credentials and try to blend in and stuff like that. Um, But the problem is it's still too easy. Right. Like we see all the time people lost passwords and then, you know, adversary logs in and, and the rest is history. So I think those are the, the reasons why it's, you know, cultural. That's where you get a lot of improvement. You need to understand access and what the users are doing, because that's really the, the attack vector. Um, and then, you know, it has been a, a pretty sore spot around credential theft, credential stuffing, that kind of stuff.
0: So yeah, in your intro again, you said you asserted that in any organization, it's highly likely that some users' credentials have already been compromised. So why do you think
1: credential compromises like these are so commonplace? Well, uh, first of all, you know I think uh, it's it's still pretty sad state around uh, password reuse and some of those kind yes. of things we just treat as as basic like no-nos. Um, you know, but, but those happen, those things happen. And then these massive credential dumps, and, and again, if I'm an adversary and I'm trying to get in, the first thing I'm trying to do is get as many credentials as possible so that if I get booted out or if I install an implant and that gets detected, I can still try to get in through other mechanisms, right? So um, it, credential loss is, is huge. And a lot of it though, again, comes back to the humans reusing passwords or just, you know, sort of not being careful with that access.
0: You do um so it sounds like education is probably a big part of what you're advocating for do, um do you um, believe in things like password managers or or is it more about sort of learning to sort of write rememberable but more unique passwords and things like that what what are your what are your strategies in general for for getting rid of bad you know credential hygiene
1: yeah i I think you you nailed it I, I would say if there's only one thing you could do because of time or cost or whatever it's get a password manager mm-hmm. uh, because so much whether it's consumer and personal or professional identity uh, so much comes down to that access and that identity and and if someone can become you, then they all of a sudden can you know pretend to be you like we see in business email compromise and you know getting people to wire money or you know they access your data or things like that
0: hmm. okay so um what cybersecurity policies do you think are being prioritized too much at the expense of more useful strategies that basically like users is, is the real thing, you know, the real sort of like hotspot. And then maybe people are spending too much on like tech to, to go through it. Are there uh, things that you think are not getting the most return on the investment people are spending too much money on and aren't really doing the job?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, of course I'll preface this with every organization's different, but I think, I think in general, um, there's, there, there's a couple of different uh, sort of phrases we could use. The first is, and uh, this is one I like to use, is you know uh, attackers attack or defenders defend infrastructure, attackers attack humans. And so those don't really line up. You know, the the humans are still thinking about IP addresses and host names and things like that. Whereas the the adversary is often thinking about like, hey, how do I get this person's credentials, right? So there's that. The other thing, I can't remember who said it, but I like it is uh, defenders think in lists, attackers think in graphs, which is kind of the same thing, which Uh is like, you know, sort of relationships and how would I move around and, and, you know, get to where I ultimately want to be. Um, So there's a couple of the, those are more philosophical, they are more approaches, more training. You know, I think, I think a lot of people did grow up in the, um, you know, deep packet inspection and net flow and those kinds of things. And there's still a lot of value there, but as the world becomes more and more cloud and, you know, sort of fragmented, then, you know, what network are you collecting traffic on kind of thing. Um, But coming back to your question, uh, I... I'm a huge, uh, I guess, sort of, I'm very outspoken around all of us buy tooling, security tooling. Mm -hmm. And I'm... I'm just making numbers up here, I'll be honest. But my estimate is you're probably getting maximum, like 50% of value from from what you're buying. Uh, Hmm. And that's maximum. Because there's so much these tools could actually do or the data that the tools collect, you could actually use. And it's maybe not even just security. Maybe there's like other aspects of IT that could benefit from the visibility the security tool provides or whatever. But the point is people don't usually have time to continually sort of tune and optimize what they've bought. And so they never quite get the full value that they kind of pictured when they saw the first demo mm. or when they made that PO. Um, so I think there's a lot there. And then the last thing I'll say is making the tools work more together. Um, you know, so like I, I do think over the last, let's say four years, uh, there's been a good surge around integrations and orchestration and automation, all that stuff. Uh, but people still haven't taken it to the next level to truly kind of, gain all the efficiencies they could. It's sort of like, hey, let's plug these things together and sort of integrate. Hmm. But then let's go do, a, like from a vendor perspective, let's go do a whole marketing campaign that we now integrate, but we never actually achieve the sort of deep integration that really saves people a ton of time, right? It's sort of like saves some time, but not, you know, it's, in, it's it, it could be one plus one equals three. And instead mm-hmm. it gets to like one plus one equals 2.2. Uh-huh. And then every, every vendor moves on to like the next integration. So mm-hmm. it helps. It's worth it but it's never quite where it needs to be. So those are, I could rant all day about all sorts of stuff we could do better. uh, But those are some of the things that I think about often.
0: Well, those are two really systemic things that I think are worth sort of bringing out into the public though. So what do you, what do you recommend in terms of, you know, security departments that are already, you know, stretched thin or short staffed and, you know, they get their new toy out of the box and immediately install it. And then, Oh my God, this next, you know, this deadline's coming up. We don't really have time to optimize it. Like, like, do you have any sort of like tips for finding a way to slow down and sort of optimize? Are there sort of go-to things that, that all sort of new, you know, security packages, you know, can do better that, you know, that you can look for in whatever you bought?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this could be, we, we could sit here for four hours, okay. uh, so I got to be careful because <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> right. I don't want to take up all the time, but uh, right. you, you know, there's, Uh, I've started giving a talk called lean hunting and I think I'm going to actually start giving a talk this year at different conferences, something around like just calling it lean security or or something, but um, it's, it's again, kind of applying entrepreneurial mindset around how do we get more with less? Like how do we squeeze more value with fewer headcount or with fewer, fewer tools? Now it seems like most organizations can get enough budget to get some tooling and some headcount sometimes sometimes quite a bit, um, but it's, it's still, whether you don't have the tooling or you don't have the head count, usually you're missing something, right? So how do we get more out of that? So I think to start with, it's okay, what do I have in my possession now where if I just squeeze a little bit more value out of the logs going into to, to a sim or to elk or something like that, um, what can I do with it? Or if I just write this extra little script, that like automates the deprovisioning of an account through PowerShell or something, it actually saves time because we can do that much more quickly than the way we do it now through IAM or whatever, right? There's all mm-hmm. these different ways. So I think it starts first with just a mindset and an approach of like this hungry, like, I'm going to build. I'm not just going to like analyze data. I'm going to be an engineer in security. That's, by the way, that's the number. I've, I've talked to probably 800 organizations now through Carbon Black and Obsidian. Mm-hmm. and the number one difference between the best and the, we'll say not best, is are you approaching everything from a more engineer perspective, or are you just approaching it at like an analyst that's just looking at data and reports? Mm-hmm. So if you can start to shift your 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 team or your organization to more of an engineering mindset, that's going to give you a, a large return. The other thing is blend, open source, and commercial. Okay. So... Maybe, maybe in certain areas, commercial is way better or it's just way easier to manage or whatever. Okay, cool. Like, go do that. But there's other areas where maybe, like, for example, you throw data into Elk or you use OS Query or you do, you know, these different tools that have actually made a lot of progress where you can still improve your team or your environment without a lot of spend. Now, when I talk to other new vendors... The problem a lot of vendors think about is they only think about cost in terms of financial cost, Mm -hmm. but you, and I'm sure all the listeners realize that there's the time that you're going, that as a practitioner, that you're working with your procurement team to get that tool in house, the time you're trying to work with it to get a server to install something, the time you're actually going through training that there's so many costs, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out how all that works together. And then the last thing I'll say, and again, I could keep talking about this (laughs) is is coming back to something we just talked about a few minutes ago, which is, do you have existing tools or does someone maybe in another team have existing tools that would help you do something better? IR, hunting, you know, policy management, whatever, uh, that maybe wasn't designed exactly for your problem, but you could use that and squeeze that value out of it. So you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of opportunities to win here, but mostly it starts with that sort of philosophy and approach around how can I get more with kind of what I already have?
0: Yeah, engineering mindset, but also collaboration with other departments and stuff.
1: Um, oh, so- I, oh there's one, sorry, there's one other thing I want to say. Yeah. Um, here's, here's one more thing, which is a little bit different because you said collaboration. Mm-hmm. If some team just went through months of like retooling and building out a nice tech stack and building mm-hmm. some playbooks and whatever, can you learn from that, like, like in another company, can you learn from that team? And conversely, if you just went through that, can you share that? Hmm. We focused so much because there was such a, a need to share like threat intel and threat feeds and IOCs and whatever else you want to call them like intelligence can we actually share what's working and what's not from a tech stack, from a tooling perspective, from a, mm. you know, just sort of an approach perspective, how we operate, how we build out our security program, because someone else just spent months figuring that out. It might not be perfect, but you can learn from that. Mm-hmm. And there are months of effort. You talk to them for an hour. You might've absorbed a lot of that, right? So we got to start sharing more of the, the approach, the guiding principles, the, the tech stack, and not just focus on things like threat Intel.
0: So, to move from the um, you know best practices to as you said before the not not best uh, practices, uh, you mentioned previously that one topic you you like to speak about is the data privacy and security practices of the world 's largest tech tech companies and where they're falling short uh, since security companies should ideally be the most knowledgeable on the best practices to take, uh, where do you believe they can stand to approve their data privacy or security postures?
1: Yeah, so you know security versus privacy is uh, never ending pendulum and, and sure. battle, you know, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Um, I was just on a, I was just on a panel last night and we were we were talking about, you know, everyone's favorite GDPR. Yep. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's challenging because there's a lot of rights and a lot of privacy that, that I really do think we should expect as consumers, mm-hmm. but it gets much fuzzier when you become an employee Right. Because you're using the employer's information system, you're working on employer IP, whatever, right? Like Mm -hmm. how much of a right to privacy does the employee deserve Mm -hmm. versus being able to for the environment to monitor for you know cyber attacks and threats, insider threats, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to go too much further down that because we could talk about that for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. But but there is this challenge where a lot of these laws are starting to pop up that are more geared towards consumers who really are just, it's more about educating people that, hey, you are the product because you're using this you know service or social media or whatever for free. So your data is going everywhere. Yep. Um, and then how does that apply maybe to, to enterprise and corporations from a uh, data privacy and uh, you know corporation perspective uh, from like a, a social media provider or things like that? I think on the positive side, most of the big guys have great like cybersecurity teams, so they've invested heavily in preventing, uh, you know, unwanted compromise kind of thing. Where it starts to get a little uh, less good, we'll say is. You know, they're, they're essentially in the business of selling the data or sort of chopping it up and finding different ways to utilize it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every copy of data is a liability. And so when you start to have these large data sets, and it's very easy to click a button and copy an S3 bucket or, you know, shift some data from one provider to another, move from one cloud to another, whatever very quickly, you can lose track of the data. And, and I think that's where a lot of work still needs to be done of, okay, yeah, sure, you can you can hold my data, you can hold my patient data, my, I don't know, cell phone location data, if you're, you know, my cell phone provider, whatever, like stuff that you need to operate. But then if that starts to flow into third parties or go other places, do you essentially have some sort of chain of custody or some sort of tracking to at least understand where it's going. And I don't think anyone's doing that very well right now.
0: Uh, so to move on to another uh, topic, um, for the purposes, or you know, to, to get our listeners caught up if they don't know about it, what are credential stuffing attacks? And why are they on the rise? And how can enterprises protect themselves against them?
1: Well, basically, I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, credential dumps, right? So there's mm-hmm. lots of sites or uh, databases, et cetera, where you can just go harvest. Like I'm going to go collect mm-hmm. a million logins to some service or, or mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, then I'm going to go try your Gmail username and password against all these sites because you probably use your email as a username because that's usually the default. And then see if you didn't change your password, right? Or even things like like work emails. You mm-hmm. know, if I collect your work emails, maybe I can use that to sign into a bank or something like that. So it's, it's all about trying different Uh, credentials that have been seen and known to work somewhere. So at some, at some point in time, this username and this password worked for you. So I, the adversary, I'm going to try that against these various sites, thinking that you probably have, you know, Facebook, Gmail, you know, bank of America, JP Morgan, whatever, all these different sites. Um, And so, you know, Back to your password manager question, you know, a lot of times the, the the kind of person that's outside of the cybersecurity world is like, well, how are they guess how are they guessing my password to yeah. Gmail or whatever? It's like, no, they didn't. They compromised that tiny little yoga studio or the pizza mm-hmm. place or whatever where you sign yeah. up for an account, and then they use that to go into the major places that actually have really good security. Yeah. So uh, I think it really comes down to a couple things. The first is if we can just make password reuse go away (laughs) to whatever means. That's, that's one huge thing. Uh, number two though, is, is better monitoring. Like, are we Mm -hmm. seeing strange logins or logins from a devices that we don't expect? You know, things like that. I think you're starting to see some of that from like Googles and other people in the world that say, Hey, um, this device just logged in. We've never seen it before. Just wanted you to know kind of thing. Right. It's not Mm -hmm. perfect. Um, there's some ways that you know, adversaries can maybe get around that. But in general, we're starting to move in the right direction around analyzing where people are accessing things from, what they're doing. Uh, And that's what we're trying to do more on the enterprise side. Um, But it's, it's this kind of, combination approach of reducing the likelihood that stuffing would even work. Hmm. um, And that includes things like multi-factor authentication. Uh, But then B, making sure that there's some analysis of like, hey, this login happened and then this activity started happening. We've never seen you log in and just download every file on the file share. That's (laughs) kind of weird. Yeah, Uh, Maybe it's okay, but let's at least like check, you know? So I think it's a combination of those
0: things. So I imagine that, you know, theoretically we're probably a long ways down the line, but it might be able to implement something for your login pass the way we currently do with banks where they see you suddenly you know taking out five thousand dollars worth of you know itunes credits or whatever and they call you and say wait a minute is this actually you like is that a possibility where you know your your email provider you know whatever can say hey your user pass has been used on these 17 different places within five minutes
1: yeah, I think I think everything's luckily moving in that direction, which is, okay. is is positive. With with analytics or machine learning or other techniques, it's usually mm-hmm. a combination of them. Mm-hmm. Where it's it's basically comparing the current behavior against what you've typically done, and if it deviates enough, which is basically how your credit card spends uh, spending uh, uh, fraud detection works, right? It's is right. like, hey, this is very outside you. It might still be you, but I'm going to check.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, at the time we're recording this about two days ago was, um, we had an election, uh, here in Chicago for the mayoral runoff. Uh, I previously spoke with John Dixon at the denim group about the hacking that happened to voting machines in the 2016 elections, uh, and the possibility for the same in 2018. Did we actually see a measurable level of voting machine fraud during the midterms? I don't remember seeing much reporting on it by comparison with 2016. So I'm curious if, well,
1: I, I, I think it was even just, um, just this morning or yesterday, one of the senators, and uh, it's been a busy day, so I, I, I blank on the name. I apologize. Yeah. But one of the senators sent a letter uh, saying, hey, we can't say there's no evidence of election machine tampering because we haven't really looked for evidence. So we haven't done mm-hmm. forensics on the machines. It gets very crazy because there's there's very, and I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> mm-hmm. but there's definitely um, uh, challenges because some stuff has to be done more at the federal level, but yep. a lot of voting really is still, you know, empowered by the states, or the states are empowered to conduct voting without, like, sort of federal interference too much. Right. It's a very, like, kind of tricky line. Um, I don't, I don't personally know. I mean, I, I, what I would say is, I think, I don't think things have improved very much. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I think that's a major concern. Uh, back in 2016, one of the concerns is was, or two concerns, major concerns were machines that don't have a paper trail. Yep, (laughs) And Mm -hmm. uh, literally, so I was living in Chicago at the time, Mm -hmm. um, Chicago, or I I can't remember, I I apologize. I can't remember if it was Cook County or maybe one of the counties in like Indiana right Right. there though, around Lake Michigan was literally using election uh, voting, digital voting machines that have already been banned in California for being too insecure. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, to the earlier discussion around sort of threat intel sharing or best practice sharing, yeah. but from like an election perspective, it's like, hey, we spent all this time determining that these machines are not good enough. Yep. Why are you who have maybe millions of people in your precincts or whatever mm-hmm. still using them? So um, I, I can't say there's been any, any evidence or anything like that, but uh, you know, I, I don't think we've moved forward enough in terms of just improving the you know, kind of standard practice.
0: So in addition to um, sort of firmware updates and, and, and more, you know, up-to-date tech and stuff um, what do you feel sort of nationally is the current state of election security and what can be done to improve the nation's cybersecurity hygiene across
1: the whole ecosystem, not just Chicago. So a couple of, a couple of minor questions there, right? Um,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that affects, you know, every, every single thing going forward or anything.
1: Well, I think, I think elections uh, it, it's too uh, so, so on the one hand, you you sort of get the almost like a stock portfolio where you diversify, and so you know if something has a big problem, you're still okay. Kind of the same thing with tech, uh, but you don't really want security through obscurity. You don't really want security just through diversification. You need to have it, a reason. Uh, and so, I, I think there's there needs to be more standardization actually around. Hey, these are very well built machines, and there's audit trails and things like that. Um, so, I think. I think sharing and, uh, spending money is, is, uh, is required. I think a lot of the times the people that are working the machines aren't the most sophisticated because let's be honest, they're just, usually it's people that are, um, Ha, maybe have a little bit more time, and therefore aren't in the you know sort of corporate rat race, and and mm-hmm. maybe just haven't been as as or technical just, or just volunteers who have another job and <laughs> don't right. have time to yeah right right and then, and they're not supposed to be experts so right. you know that and and then you know kind of zooming out I think from a cybersecurity perspective um, things are getting better like mm-hmm. things like the iPhone and and some of these other technologies that have become very popular have just risen the bar tremendously like the fact that your phone is usually encrypted by default and maybe requires biometrics and things like that for the average person it's improved things you start to find ways to make multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication more um, sort of on by default or easier to use i think that raises the bar from a company perspective the challenge is still you know it's it's kind of like someone's throwing missiles at you but the government's saying, hey, you're, but it's your problem, you yeah, know, right. because, it's, you know, the federal government's not trying to def- defend all the, all the corporations and enterprises. So, you know, I think there it's around um, as we refresh our tech and we start to move things to cloud and just sort of renew our laptops and things, making sure that this time around, we've thought about security more from the beginning and privacy, security mm-hmm. and privacy more from the beginning. Um, and then finally, it, it comes down to, uh, again, people. The, Mm -hmm. the, the awareness, the culture, the approach, like, Hey, stop clicking on stupid stuff (laughs) right, right, right. or stop reusing passwords. Like if we just did those two things, whether it's at work computer or home Mm -hmm. computer, everything's going to get better. It's not going to be perfect. We're still going to have a tax, but it's, it's things like that where if we can just get more of the population or more of your employees to do those things, you know, you get better.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sort of springing this one on you. This wasn't on the list, but I was thinking of in terms of uh, election security. This I I don't know if this is opening a new can of worms or making things worse. But do you think that there's still a benefit to having polling locations that you have to go to with you know secure computers? You know, a, a lot of people say you know it seems like we should be able to sort of vote on our own computers or our phones by now or something like that. Would that would that be a further security risk or is having these insecure sort of you know places to do uh voting is that is that more insecure is that even a possibility in the future do you think
1: yeah so um uh so first of all i'm speaking more uh i I, i'm not really uh i don't have data to support yeah this is pure philosophy so feel free (laughs) yeah so we're we're just sort of brainstorming here yes um i think i think we still need to go to a physical location for the future more so because we need to really think about all the the ramifications and the attack vectors and the possibility yes. of tampering or compromise. Uh, so that's it, it's not uh, in my head. It's not because of some um, exact reason why we need to kind of hold off a little bit, other than we need to think about it and 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 really discuss it and really flush out the you yeah. know sort of attack vectors and things like that. It has to be an ironclad security strategy before you start thinking about yeah, voting and, and, yeah. and and look let's let. The reason the internet's a a, a combat zone is because there's very little attribution, right? If Mm -hmm. everyone has to have attribution and you have to, like Estonia did, where you have to use a card tied to your person that says, I am Ben and I'm getting online with this IP address and this email address and stuff, you know, cybercrime goes way down because everything can be tracked back to an exact human or, you know, at least in theory. Um, And so, uh, you know, but the flip side is, okay, how do I prove that I'm the one that submitted that vote? Right? Or how does mm-hmm. I how do I prevent someone else from not voting on my behalf just because you know they figured out my token or my credentials or whatever okay. it is? So okay. those are the ways where I think we need to think more about um, just the ramifications and the attack vectors. Uh, and I do think having to go to a polling place and being on a pre-generated list those aren't perfect things, but they're deterrents. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to do it at scale without like hard hard to attack that at scale without people noticing. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I think my my preference is let's get a little bit more paper involved in the election process and yep. truly have a better technical solution. And then maybe we go, you know, kind of hardcore into the technical solution.
0: Hmm. Pulling, pulling place as old school two factor authentication. Yeah. Um, so uh, as we start to wrap up here, what other credential based cybersecurity emergencies do you think are on the horizon? What do you, where do you think the next wave of cybercrime is going to come from? Is it from a
1: either a tool or a technique point of view? So, well, you know going back to your going back to the credential stuffing thing for a second mm-hmm. um, or just sort of uh, account compromise um, what's interesting is you know the the adversaries iterate and innovate and you know they're they're not always super sophisticated but there's enough super sophisticated or sophisticated ones that you know sort of raise the 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 adversary's game. if you think about tools like mint or some of these, other uh, sort of luxuries or nice things that like help you manage your finances or you can log into one place and then it can log into your Twitter and Facebook and all these other things. The reason I bring that up is the adversaries use those because what they do is they log into something like Mint or some of these other tools or even like a like a, like a a bank account that allows you to connect to another bank account. Then they can test credentials through Mint. Hmm. So then all Bank of America or JP Morgan or Citibank or whomever sees is that they keep seeing failed logins from Mint. Hmm. So it's not like it's coming from Russia or China or you know, yeah. wherever. Right. So that's just an example, but it's an example of people getting a bit more sophisticated in using our own tools against us, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. I think the other thing is, and this is, a, this is quite frankly a massive problem, the cloud providers are not responsible for security. They're mm-hmm. responsible for security at the foundational level, the infrastructure level, they're, they say they're uh, responsible for security of the cloud, but you're still responsible for security in the cloud. So the reason I bring that up is we talk to organizations over and over again who race to put their application in the cloud or use some SaaS-based service or whatever. You know, it could be Slack, G Suite, you know, Office 365, Salesforce, mm-hmm. whatever. And people just think that like this cloud provider is doing all the security for them, which I understand why they might think that, but it's not true. The, the mm-hmm. truth is that cloud provider might be you know, securing the underlying routers or patching the underlying Linux or whatever the operating system is, but you're still responsible for making sure the right people have the right access. They're doing the right things. They're not leaking data. You know that kind of stuff, and that's a actually a huge problem because these teams can whip out a credit card, sign up for AWS in a minute, spin up clusters that are costing you know thousands of dollars and doing compute, storing data, whatever. Um, and really, like you just have to hope that the default security policy is good enough or someone didn't click the wrong thing. So I think that's a huge problem. And then the other thing is um, you know, it's just, how do we, how do we, How do we allow people to be productive and have a good experience as an employee or consumer, uh, knowing that a lot of what they want to do is their personal device? So like your phone or your tablet or whatever essentially has parts of your professional identity and your personal identity. And I think we're going to have to figure out how those kind of unify, but also sort of stay separate. Uh, And I don't think anyone's really solved that yet.
0: All right. So for a bonus round here, could you tell us our listeners a little bit about the project that the obsidian team has been working on? I've heard it it leverages data science, AI, and machine learning to drive identity intelligence.
1: Yeah. So we, uh, we collect uh, activity logs and other information from all these different applications and cloud providers. Mm -hmm. We unify that. And then we really try to surface to the security team, the IT team, uh, where your, uh, Access creep or identity creep has occurred. So basically, every organization, you probably have accounts that you don't use, right? You probably were given an account when you started, and then you never logged in. So like, where do the things like that occur? Like, where do you have extra surface area that really shouldn't exist? Might cost you money, but it certainly adds risk. Uh, And then we're also looking for uh, detection of threats and then helping to, to respond. So we're really trying to understand how the employees are utilizing these different applications? Should they be doing what they're doing? Should they have that access? And then how can you sort of right-size all of that? And
0: if uh, our listeners want to know more about Obsidian, uh, where can they reach you?
1: So obsidiansecurity.com or Mm -hmm. at obsidiansec, S-E-C. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I'm Ben at obsidiansecurity.com.
0: Great, Ben, thank you very much for being here today. This is a, a lot to think about. My
1: pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: And thank you all for listening and watching. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more on our YouTube page. Just go to YouTube and type in Infosec Cyberspeak to check out our collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Just search Infosec Cyberspeak in your favorite podcast app. To see the current promotional offers available for podcast listeners and to learn more about our Infosec Pro Live Boot Camps, Infosec Skills On Demand Training Library, and InfoSec security awareness and training program, go to infosecinstitute.com slash podcast or click the link in the description. Thanks once again to Ben Johnson and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week.